This morning we're going to move into the feeding of the 5,000. And there's more here than what I can possibly cover in the amount of time that we're going to cover. Um, like I said, we'll probably double back into some of it next week as well. Beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read to you this morning out of the New American Standard 2020. It says, After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. A large crowd was following him because they were watching the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. But Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. That might read better, Jesus went up into the hill country, but I'll get into that in a second. There he sat with his disciples, and now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. So Jesus, after raising his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? But he was saying this only to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, and he said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not enough for them, for each to receive just a little one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him that as he says to Jesus, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? And Jesus said, have the people recline to eat. Or have the people sit down in other translations. Now there was plenty of grass in the place, and so the men reclined about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were reclining. Likewise also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover pieces so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with pieces of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten them. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we look into this passage and that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our understanding of it. Help us, Lord, not only to see the activity of Jesus, but to see the person of Jesus in his activity. So we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. So Christ is feeding the 5,000. This is a, a miracle that's repeated or given to us in all four of the Gospels. This is in Matthew 14, Mark 6, and Luke 9. The versions are a little bit different, although Matthew, Mark, and Luke are a little bit more uh, consistent with each other. It's important to remember that John is not only writing his Gospel from a different perspective, 
but he's also writing his gospel with a little bit different purpose. He tells us in John 20 that you may know that, he, uh, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and in him that you might have life. He's also writing it toward the end of his life. Many years have gone by since this time occurred. And no doubt there was a whole lot of seasoning that was going on in his life uh, that took place that the Lord, I believe, used in the work of inspiration when John wrote this gospel. And it tells us that it uses the phrase, after these things, the Greek expression is metatauta. Um, John uses it. He uses it also in the book of Revelation. I think at times it's misinterpreted. Uh, it's a, the, the, the meaning of it, remember, it's a Greek expression. It's kind of like a figure of speech. And the meaning of it is vague, actually. The reason why I'm bringing this up is because there are some, there are some teachers who, who will look at uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and I'm going to get myself into trouble with some of you, but that's okay. They look at Revelation chapter 2 and 3 as the church age, and then they, they say, well, the church doesn't exist after Revelation 2 and 3 because of the phrase, after these things, metatauta. But what that phrase is intended to do is it establishes a sequence, but it does not establish a chronology. That's important. That was how it was used in the Greek language. That's important to understand. Not so much necessarily here in the Gospel of John, but also it is necessarily important to understand the book of Revelation and how we interpret it. As I've told you before, the chronology that John gives us is, is not quite, um, may not be, well, first of all, it's not consistent with some of the other Gospels. But John is a writer inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he at times will pair different circumstances that he is writing about for the purpose of illustrating the points that he's attempting to make. Not only are his words inspired, but I believe the framework of the gospel is inspired. The symbolism that is here just in this chapter, because it tells us that, that, that Jesus, uh, first of all, he goes out in an area that's close to the wilderness. He goes on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He goes into the, and the, the traditional site is north of the Sea of Galilee, but it probably is east of the Sea of Galilee, what is known as the Golan Heights today. So we, the, this word that, that is translated mountain doesn't necessarily mean a mountain peak or even a hillside, but it, it, it can simply, it can mean that, by the way, but it can also mean the hill country. Or he goes to the higher ground. In other words, where is Jesus going? He's going into the wilderness. And Passover is near. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, piece those things together. Because Passover was given, why? It was the deliverance of God's people from bondage. Literally, but also symbolically. This is the second mention of Passover that we see here in the Gospel of John. We'll have another one in John 11. 
And all three of those Passover mentionings by John, I, I believe, are more intended to be a theological note rather than a chronological note, although the chronology fits. What's interesting here is that in chapter 5, it talked about a feast, right? What feast? What feast in chapter 5? We don't know. Was it Pentecost? Possibly. If that is the case, we're almost a year minus 50 plus days because it's before Passover, right? We're a year minus 50 plus days in John 6 than we were from John 5. In other words, John skips an entire year. Unless it was the fall feast, which means it was probably a good six months that John is skipping between John chapter 5 and John chapter 6. But the mentioning of Passover with Jesus going into the wilderness and he feeds the 5,000 both bread and fish. But it's a, it's a picture of the wilderness years that Israel took. The 38 years that the man who was by the pool of Bethesda who was healed in John chapter 5 is also a picture of that as well because they were actually in the wilderness uh, time from the time they refused to go in. It was about 38 years. A total of 40, yes, but it was about 38 years uh, from the time they refused to go in to the promised land that God led them around for a while until they decided, hey, we're, we're ready, and all the old people, this is, this is depressing to me, but all the old people died off. And all the people who were 20 and under during that time where they refused to go into the promised land, they were the ones who inherited the promise. Hopefully that speaks to each and every one of us to be pliable spiritually, to be moldable spiritually, to, to, to not be so set in our spiritual ways and particularly in, 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 in our theology that we hold so dearly. that we don't move to the voice of the Holy Spirit. The wind blows where it, where it wills. You cannot tell where it is coming from. You cannot tell where it is going. So it is with everyone who was born again. Jesus tells us that in John chapter 3. The wind is a representation of whom? The Holy Spirit of God. And that we always remain at that place where we are being led of the Spirit of God. So they're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It's referred to as the other side because the Jews would often refer to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee as the other side. The west side of the Sea of Galilee, follow me on this, was predominantly Jewish. The east side was a mix of Jew and Gentile. So here Jesus is, and he goes out into the wilderness. And a crowd of, it tells us about 5,000 men. Now they were probably going out there looking for signs and wonders. It's probably why they were there. Is that a bad thing? 
Some people think it is. I think what Jesus tells us, and he confirms, he confirms this in John chapter 2. See how this book keeps cycling back on itself? In John chapter 2, he's in Jerusalem during what time? Passover. First mention of Passover. And the people believed because of his signs and wonders. But Jesus would not commit himself to them because he knew what manner of people they were. I don't think it's wrong necessarily to... I'm going to be careful here. I'm going to try to be careful here. How's that? I don't think it's necessarily wrong to pursue signs and wonders, but I think doing that is incomplete in and of itself. Do you follow my thinking on this? Because... Those signs of wonders have to, they were given in the New Testament, particularly in the gospel, what we're reading here, they were giving, given why? To affirm who Jesus is. But also, as we will see later in John chapter 6, the sign of and the wonder of the feeding of the 5,000 does what? For the reader. Now, for the people who were there, it fed them. But for the ones who are reading the gospel, what does it do for us? It sets us up for the first I am discourse where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And he compares himself, we'll look at it later, he compares himself not only as the bread of life, but he compares himself to what? If you're familiar with it, to manna, which is where? Was given to the nation of Israel where? In the wilderness. And they went into the wilderness after they were delivered and celebrated that deliverance, even in the wilderness. They celebrated that deliverance through Passover. Do you see how, how the Lord is just knitting all these things together? Just by the order and, and the mentioning of different things that he puts into this text, that to me, it, it just fascinates me. The symbolism. And yet... wanting to be aware of it, but yet the meat of all this, of course, is in the text, right? So you have a crowd of people. They're pursuing signs and wonders. I don't think it's bad, but I think it's in itself is incomplete. Because what, what, what I've found is, 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 is part of human nature. Isn't it? We always have to have that carrot in front of us. Or as I will sometimes call the hook. The hook of trying to draw people in to, in some way, some shape, some form. But notice this too about these people, and this fascinates me. Because this, by the way, it says 5,000 men. There could have been anywhere as much as ten to 20,000 people there. Because it doesn't count the women and children. But what fascinates me about these folks as they went out into the wilderness, they didn't bring their RVs with them, right? There wasn't a McDonald's handy. 
or there wasn't an EV charging station out there, right? I mean, they went out there with, with really minimal resources. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake, for they will be filled. And yes, they may have been interested in the signs and wonders, but I think there at times that God places a longing in us, that God places a hunger in us, that God places a desire in us that we can't even identify ourselves. And yet God has called us to pursue that. You see, these folks get criticized in this passage. Philip gets criticized in this passage. I don't think that that, that was the Lord's intention whatsoever. I'll get to Philip in a moment. Jesus lifts up his eyes and he sees this large crowd coming to him. And he says to Philip, where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, John tells us this is a trick question, all right? Because he tells us in verse 6, but he was, only, was saying this only to test him for he himself knew what he intended to do, okay? Jesus already knows what he's going to do. But he asked, he asked uh, um, Philip this question anyway. And so as I, as I look at this, I think there's some things we can glean from this little passage of how Jesus deals with his servants. Because Jesus is addressing a problem here in, in John chapter 6, is he not? He sees the people. He asks Philip, where are we going to buy bread so these people may eat? Now, if you've read the other Gospels in all three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all tell us that the disciples came to Jesus and said, you know what, send them away. Send them away that they may go and buy bread. You know, send them away. And Jesus, in those other Gospels, he basically puts it back on the disciples and says, you give them something to eat. What we're seeing here in John is that John is picking up this, this conversation specifically with Philip and asking him, where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he does it to test him. Now, Jesus, who is God, has foreknowledge. Now, I've got some, I mean, even some friends who have some different beliefs on the incarnation. What I mean about the incarnation is God coming in the flesh, right? My, my belief is that Jesus was self-aware the entire time. He knew who he was the entire time. Even in the womb, he knew who he was. That's, that's my belief. That, to me, is consistent with who God is, right? Um, Challenge me on that one if you want. We'll have some fun. So Jesus, it, as God, had foreknowledge. He knows everything. So why is he testing Philip? 
Is he testing Philip because he's not really sure what Philip is going to say? Or is he testing Philip because Philip is not sure what Philip is going to say? It, and I think, I think at times we go through these periods in our life, and I think unawares, where God speaks to us and asks us these questions. He already knows what we're going to say, but the reality is we don't. And the reason why we don't is because we, we have yet to really work through these things in our lives. We have really yet to really to, to come to a, to a place of solid commitment, of, of, let's say maybe a direction that we're to go in. Or a sense of, well, God, you have, you have taken great care of me up to this point, but you know, now I'm here. And I'm not so sure you can, you can cover this scenario. That's how we grow. That's part of what the prophet Isaiah talked about when he said, come let us reason together, saith the Lord. And referring to that your sins have made you scarlet, but you will be what? Made what? White as snow. So he begins to kind of push this with, with Philip. And Philip just says, we don't have the money. I'm paraphrasing, of course, you know that. It's in the text. As I thought about Philip's answer, was it a rational, reasonable answer? I think it was. What Philip might not have been aware of is that he was thinking naturally rather than supernaturally. And the real test, as some commentators like to call this, the real push from Jesus is that, that it, it's, it's really an invitation for us to step out of our, of our natural thinking and an invitation for us to step into our supernatural thinking. Essentially, my thought, okay, my interpretation of what Philip is saying in verse 7 He's expressing the impossibility of the task. We don't have the money. And it's my suspicion that this was exactly what Jesus was attempting to bring out of Philip. Again, this is how Jesus deals with his servants. He doesn't always just stick it in Philip's brain and all of, a sudden, all of a sudden Philip has the answer. He places the situation in front of Philip. In this case, it's a situation that's impossible to meet. And he begins to question him. 
Count it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, and when patience has its perfect work, you will be complete and lack nothing. James chapter 1. It's just a different version of that, but I think it's very clear in John 6 that James writes about it later in James chapter 1. And I, I think part of our, 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 what hampers our own spiritual growth at times is we just expect God to do it all supernaturally for us. We wake up one day and we're more spiritual than we were the day before. Most, if not all, of you know that that's really not how it works. Most of you, probably, I'm guessing here, wish that was the way it worked. Why? Because I wouldn't have to go through the effort. I wouldn't have to go through the pain. I wouldn't have to go through telling Jesus I don't have enough money and everybody else thinking I don't have enough faith. Which is none of their business, to be honest with you. Oh, that we would get free of worrying about what other people think about our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Seriously. It's the same idea in Matthew chapter 9, verse 19, verse 26. Where Jesus is pushing on the Pharisees. And his disciples are still under the misguided belief that the Pharisees are still good and righteous and holy and pure and they're getting the best seats in heaven. They may be getting the best seats, but they, it probably isn't going to be in heaven. But I'll leave that with, with you. And, 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 then, and so they become exacerbated. Which, quite frankly, when we get to that place, that's probably sometimes the, exactly where the Lord wants us. Exactly where the Lord wants us. So we're finally in a place that we're finally going to listen. And then we began, because we are so angry, we are so upset, we are so displaced, then we finally claim... Proverbs chapter 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will direct your path. But in Matthew 19, they're exacerbated and they ask the question, who then can be saved? I think it's a legitimate question. See, even in one of my Bibles, and I'll blame this on one of my former pastors because I, I, I was taking notes. I used to take notes in my Bible. Uh, actually, he's a very good teacher. But I even have in John 6, oh, it's here somewhere. Oh, there it is. Anyway, I even have in John 6 next to this verse, lack of faith. Because I remember that's what he taught on. I don't think it was lack of faith. I think it was who he was at that place and at that time. And I think the Lord knew that and the Lord was 
working with him, testing, trying, proving, kind of like when you test your oxen. I'll get back to Matthew 19 in just a second. Kind of like when you test your oxen, when you try something out, or my favorite, when you test drive a motorcycle or car. And Jesus brings us to that point where we are beyond our own resources. Again, Matthew 19, they are exacerbated, so they say to Jesus, who then can be saved? It's a great question. It's probably the most important question. What does Jesus respond to them? He says, with man it is impossible, but with God, all things, right? All things are possible. They were thinking naturally. Jesus was calling them and bringing them to the end of that thinking so they may step beyond that thinking, that mindset, that attitude, that countenance of our own hearts and souls and call us to think supernaturally. Because he is faithful and he is able. And I love what Paul said to Timothy, when we are faithless, he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. But part of this relationship with Christ is we have to endure at times what is very irritating so that we come to the end of ourselves. And therefore, we're able to let, I love the saying, all right, I'm not a cliche guy and I don't like bumper sticker theology, but I'm going to go with this one. We let go and we let God. Peter, uh, 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 um, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. I looked and saw Peter's name on my, in the Bible. Andrew tries a different way to solve the problem. He's going to take a collection. He's an usher, right? He's passing the plate. And he finds this kid who's willing to share these five loaves of bread and the two fishes. Interesting that the Bible tells us they're barley loaves, which was considered the bread of poor people. But what fascinates me is some of the most generous people that I've ever met are people who really didn't hardly have two dimes to rub together themselves. But Andrew decides we're going to tackle this problem a different way. We're going to look for donations. So he goes and he's looking for food in this barren place. And he also understands that his efforts have failed. And he says that to Jesus. This boy has five barley loaves, two fish, but what are these among so many people? So he comes to the end of himself. Both of them, both Philip and Andrew, come to the end of themselves. And then Jesus says, I have this covered. Doesn't say that, does it? He simply says, have the people sit down. 
thanks. He simply says, have the people sit down. To me, that fascinates me. Because if I were one of the disciples then, I would have liked to have heard, have the people sit down, I'm going to feed them with what we have. But does it say that in the text? No. It simply says, have the people sit down. Now, you are at the end of yourself. And it's a crossroads. Follow my thinking here. You are at the end of yourself, and now you have a decision to make. Am I going to follow Jesus one step at a time, although I have no idea what he has planned? Because it doesn't say that. Doesn't say, you know, we, we obviously we always read this into the story because we've read this hundreds of times, right? Understand that. But we are at a crossroads where Jesus, when we finally get to the end of ourselves and Jesus says, do this. And it doesn't completely make sense. The wind blows where it wills. You cannot tell where it is coming from. Or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is also describing what our spiritual life is intended to look like in John 3. But I love this because, now, there's a lot of people. There's the 12 and probably others that were following him. And you have all these people, and try to organize all these people and get them to sit down. I, I would imagine that the scene here on the eastern slopes of the Sea of Galilee must have originated the phrase herding cats. I mean, think about it. How difficult this must have been. And, and do you realize how much faith it really took for these guys to do that? Have the people sit down. And it doesn't say Simon Peter stood up and said, why, Lord, why should we do this? It doesn't say that. It simply says that the men reclined about 5,000 in number because there was plenty of grass in the place. So Jesus, and I love this. He takes the loaves. And after giving thanks, I would have loved to have heard that prayer. None of the Gospels record it. I, I imagine it was probably just a very simple and short prayer. But I would have loved to have heard that and, and heard that, that exchange between him and the Father and, and this giving of thanks, prob, giving of thanks for the provision Because he wanted to care for the people. Because as Yahweh fed his people in the wilderness, so now Yahweh is feeding his people on the eastern slope of the Galilee. To me, it's just, it just, it, and, and Jesus will tie this in later, later on in this chapter. 
giving thanks not only for the provision, but also for the opportunity that now this opens up this incredible first of the, I believe, six I am statements in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. So he gives thanks and they distribute and it says everybody ate as much as they wanted. But do you see the connection? between getting at the end of yourself and then choosing to be obedient even when it does not make sense? Because if they were not obedient, had they not sat down, had they said, well, you know what, this doesn't make any sense. Had they not done that, would they have been fed? I don't know. But as I think about this, I'm thinking we, there, there has to be a place where we avail ourselves to the will of God. Now, is God in his sovereignty a, able to overcome our lack of obedience, lack of faith, lack of all of that? Yes. But he doesn't want a robot. thing is, he wants a loving child. He wants a loving son. He wants a loving daughter. But he brings us to the end of ourselves so that we choose to obey. We choose to follow his lead. I think the problem with most of us most of the time is we do not want to come to the end of ourselves we want the problem dealt with. We want it taken care of. And just let me go because I'm fine. After all, Lord, I come to church all the time. And we short circuit the deeper work of the Holy Spirit in our lives because we are unable, or excuse me, we're unwilling. And the Lord is a gentleman, as I've told you many times, in that he's only going to take us as far as we want to go. Now, he does have a way. I've told you this. I tell you this a lot, don't I? He does have a way of encouraging us one way, shape, or form. They sit down. They're, they're fed. They're given as much as they want. And then... He tells them to pick up all the fragments, all the leftovers. Now, it, it, the NIV says so that none would be wasted, right? That's what it says. New American Standard, King James. New King James says that nothing would be lost. Do you realize there's incredible symbolism in that? Because in a sense, what he's doing is he's setting us up to what he's going to tell us later in John chapter 6. 
not that the food would be lost, not that the food would be perishing, but that the people would not perish. John 6.39, you can look at it later. You know, and as I read this and I think, I think John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but ah, this is a masterful composition of the story of Jesus in this gospel. Later on in John chapter 17, Jesus will pray. And he's praying for us in his high priestly prayer that none of us would be lost. Praying for the disciples that none of them would be lost except for the son of perdition or the son of doom. John 17, 12. And so they pick up the fragments and there's 12 baskets left. Now, some guys have taught this as God always rewards those who are obedient. And there's, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Sometimes we don't see it. But the 12, 12 and I'm not big on numerology, but I think it does has its, have, have its place. 12 is really the number of the people of God. You have 12 tribes of Israel. Well, actually, we have 13. Well, actually, we have 14, but we won't go there. So essentially, you have the 12 tribes of Israel, but you also have the 12 apostles, which are a representation of God's people today, the church. And this idea of picking up 12 baskets, yes, it was one for every disciple, every apostle, including Judas, I might throw that in there just for fun. But I think it's also speaking of the preservation of God's people. That none would be lost. That we are kept in the hand of God. And no man has the power to pluck us out of his hand. There's this incredible sense of security because of God's faithfulness, which has ab absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing to do with your faithfulness or unfaithfulness, by the way. Peter says that in his epistle, kept by the power of God. I love that. I trust that. I've been a Christian for a long time. How's that? Almost 60 years. And I understand so much more grace that is greater than all our sin. Because the, the fragments are gathered up. And so the people, I love this. It says, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, I'm in verse 14, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. What are they talking about? We're going to look at that next week. But I had to end with that. 
because that is a, such a significant understanding on their part of who Jesus is. And yet, still, as we go into John chapter 6, they're struggling with a sense of commitment toward him.